0: Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Supreme Court Justice Breyer is retiring, leaving President Biden to pick the next Supreme Court Justice. He's promised to pick a black woman. We discuss the history of the Supreme Court in the area of civil rights and what a new justice could pretend. Our guest is Dr. Gerald Horn and Monthly payments of the child tax credits have stopped, but there's still more money coming. What are the next steps? And what is the state of play to extend the child tax credit? For our weekly Earth Watch, a key victory against the logging of Redwoods. Also today, our weekly Earth Watch. Our guest for the child tax credits is Anna Aurelio, the Federal Campaign Director of the Economic Security Project Action. And for our Earth Watch, Naomi Weg, an activist, an environmental activist who grew up in the redwoods of northern
1: I'm Eileen Alfonderry. Senate Democrats plan to move swiftly to replace retiring Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. They'll use the rapid 2020 confirmation of Justice Amy Coney Barrett as a new standard. Barrett was confirmed exactly a month after then-President Trump nominated her to replace the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Mary Sherman reports.
2: After three decades on the bench, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer is expected to announce his retirement this week which would provide an opportunity for President Joe Biden to make good on a campaign promise.
3: The president has uh, stated and reiterated his commitment to nominating a black woman to the Supreme Court and certainly uh, stands by
2: that. That's White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. Democrats expect to hold hearings and votes before Breyer officially steps aside at the end of his term. I'm Mary Sherman for Pacifica Network and Public News Service.
1: Democrats will be hoping for a handful of Republican senators' votes. Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, and Lindsey Graham of South Carolina all voted last year to confirm federal appeals Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, one of Biden's possible nominees. Other potential picks are California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger and federal judge Michelle Childs, whom Biden has nominated to be an appeals court judge. Russian officials are throwing cold water on the separate US and NATO responses to Russian demands over Ukraine. The US and NATO refused to budge on the key Russian demand that the Western Military Alliance guarantee it will not admit Ukraine as a member. Julia Chapman reports from Moscow. The
2: Kremlin says there is still room for dialogue with the United States after the responses were handed over to Russian officials. But a spokesperson for President Vladimir Putin said it looked as though Russia's main security demands had not been taken into account. Moscow has called for NATO to exclude Ukraine from future membership and agree not to station offensive weapons in Eastern Europe. Those proposals have been described as non-starters by Western officials, but they say some trust-building measures could be agreed on. Russia continues to amass troops on the Ukrainian border but insists that it has no plans to invade its neighbor. Julia Chapman, Moscow.
1: A man who identified himself as a believer in the QAnon conspiracy theory has been sentenced to three years and eight months in prison for assaulting police officers at the Capitol during last year's violent attack. Nicholas Langerand called himself a patriot, but the judge who sentenced him said the rioters who invaded the Capitol on January 6th of last year don't deserve that description. Federal authorities explicitly have linked more than 30 defendants to QAnon, the pro-Trump conspiracy theory. The theory centers on the bizarre belief that Trump was waging a secret fight against a Satan-worshipping, child-sacrificing cabal of deep state foes, prominent Democrats, and Hollywood elites. Another core belief is that Trump would orchestrate mass arrests, military tribunals, and executions of his enemies. The head of the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says the African continent is on course to reach its target of vaccinating at least 70 percent of its population against COVID-19 by the end of this year. The public health agency said it has been encouraged by a surge in vaccinations in countries like Nigeria, where vaccine hesitancy appears to be waning, with the destruction of expired doses and increased availability of vaccines. Only about 11 percent of Africa's 1.3 billion residents is fully vaccinated at this point. The Los Angeles City Council has approved a measure to ban new oil and gas wells and phase out existing ones. The measure would shut down oil and gas fields in the city after decades of nearby residents suffering health damage from air pollution caused by fossil fuel extraction. Los Angeles City Council President Nori Martinez said communities of color have suffered disproportionately. From Wilmington to the San Fernando Valley, Gas, drilling, and oil wells have disproportionately affected the health of our working-class neighborhoods. This is yet another example of how frontline communities disproportionately bear the impacts of pollution and climate change. Whether it's a power plant, freeways, or an airport, communities of color have been carrying the burden for longer than we can imagine. Today, we are reinforcing our commitment to environmental justice with one of the strongest policies in the entire nation. The L.A. City Council also created a jobs program to transition oil and gas workers to other industries with good-paying jobs and benefits. Another international oil company is pulling out of Myanmar. The announcement from Australia's Woodside Petroleum comes nearly a year after the military staged a coup, removed civilian leaders, and has arrested and killed opponents. Frances Total and Chevron also announced they were withdrawing from Myanmar last week. I'm Eileen Alfandary for Pacifica Radio.
0: Now we are going to go to our first segment on the child tax credit. Now, some of you listening may have been receiving your monthly payments of child tax credits, but you will notice that in January, you didn't get your check. And that's because the Build Back Better Act, where the child tax credit was extended for an additional year, is stuck in the Senate. And because it was stuck in the Senate, it meant that millions of families, who have been helped by the child tax credit didn't get their checks. Let us go to a clip now from Bloomberg on this.
2: What is your view on the child tax credit? What if they had to take it out? Could you support it?
0: Uh, I will fight like hell to make sure they don't. I
4: I was the original author of that in the Senate in 2013, uh, joining with Senator Bennett and then later Senator Booker and Warnock um, and Senator Wyden has been really helpful on it and it's it's, I mean, think of it this way, 92% of Ohio families um, who have children under 18 get at least a $3,000 tax cut every year under the child tax credit. It lifted 40% of kids out of poverty um, last year in only six months. We passed it in March. It was up and running in July. Give me another program that's had that impact and that quickly implemented. Um, you should just look at my website and look at the stories of people, how it changed their lives. And so many people that last week of the month face the anxiety, of how am I going to pay my rent? And I've got a cut here to do this. The child tax credit has given people just some, it's relieved so much anxiety for so many working class and middle class families and poor families. I mean, it's again, 92% of Ohio families and children benefit from it. Um, we passed it with 51 Democrats, 50 plus the vice president opposed by 50 Republicans. It's a real it's a real point of difference between the political parties, unfortunately, because it should be it will become as popular as Social Security once it's implemented in a longer term way. If we get a five year extension at some point, it will be as popular as Social Security. I don't make predictions on right. shows like this very often, but that's one that I will absolutely make.
2: So, Senator, let me push you just a little bit. You said you'll fight like hell to keep it in. President Biden suggested they might break up Bill Back Better into different pa- passages. Assume it's not dropped out altogether, but it doesn't go in the first wave. The first wave, for example, might be universal preschool. Could you vote for something like that and wait on the child tax credits?
4: Uh, I don't know. I, I don't. I'm not going to negotiate uh, other than with <laughs> Senator Schumer and Senator McConnell and Speaker Pelosi. But um, it's very important. And I think there's we, we have we had 47. When I first started working on this bill, we started off slowly. But by 2018, we had 47, 46, I believe, Democratic co-sponsors of that bill. And we have some Republican interests. But um, unfortunately, to get a child tax credit like that, so often Republicans demand huge corporate tax cuts as part of their sort of their price. And we've spent enough time doing corporate tax cuts when that freight train goes down the rail rail with Republican tax cuts for for the wealthy. Um, it's there's no stopping it. And we're this is going to be all about tax cuts for working class families mm-hmm. and middle class this is middle class families, too. It's people making 80, 90, 100,000 a year, not just people making 20, 30, 40 thousand dollars a year.
0: Senator Brown, Sherrod Brown, who is a real champion of the child tax credit. And he's saying that he's going to fight like hell uh, for the child tax credit. I'd like to welcome our guests who could let us know the latest news, the lay of the land, Anna Aurelio. I'd like to welcome her back to Sojourner Truth. She is the federal campaign director of the Economic Security Project. She has fought for the public interest for nearly three decades as the Washington, D.C. Director for Environment America, and prior to that, as the Legislative Director for U.S. PIRG. Anna led a team of advocates and mobilized grassroots members and state networks to win policies to cut pollution, protect public lands, and boost renewable energy and auto fuel economy. She helped create the Climate Action Campaign, a coalition of national environmental groups working to win national climate action, and the Green Scissors Campaign, which recruited bipartisan support to cut billions of dollars in government spending for wasteful harmful program. Anna, welcome back. And it's really good to know also in in terms of your work on Child Tax Credit, that prior to that, you were deeply involved in the environmental movement. Uh, welcome back, Anna.
3: Yeah. Hi. Good morning, Margaret. Thanks so much for having me on. And boy, we we have a, a moment right now, right? We have a moment to be able to tackle the climate crisis and to be able to tackle economic issues, especially child poverty. And so I'm, I'm really thrilled to be on your on your show this morning.
0: Right. So Anna, a lot of, I mean, you could just tell by, by some of the headlines, I'm looking at one from NPR. Families are in distress after the first month without the expanded child credit. Millions of kids uh, thrust back in poverty. That is uh, NBC News. Um, you know, even the Washington Post uh, had something, a eulogy for President Biden's expanded child tax credit. And then it says maybe. So <laughs> first, uh, Ada, remind us about the impact of the child tax credit because it was working, right? And uh, how, what are the measures? How do we know that the child tax credit actually had a very positive impact, Anna.
3: Yeah. So first, I just want to say, Margaret, you and I, we've been working for social change for decades. There's no eulogy right now. We're going to fight to get this over the finish line. So I just, I just refuse to accept that. So what's at stake here? How did the child tax credit work? Last year, the American Rescue Package included a really transformative expansion of the child tax credit. It did several really important things. It increased the size of the credit. It made it monthly. And most importantly, especially for racial equity, it made sure that the child tax credit reached low and no income families. These families had been kept out of receiving the full credit, which included 27 million children. Six in 10 of those were either Black or Latino children. So disproportionately, children of color were left out of this program. Disproportionately, 70% of families that were headed by single parents did not receive the full credit. So, with the American Rescue Package, did, and again, you heard the clip from Senator Brown, he and others really fought like heck to make sure that that tax credit would be fully refundable. And that meant it reached families who had low or no income. And so that's really one of the critical changes. Also, increasing the credit really gave uh, families more money to be able to meet their expenses. So the impacts of this was one, 90% of uh, families in the United States got this credit over the last six months. Two is, uh, in, in addition to increasing the size of the credit, it made it monthly. So instead of getting it as a lump sum, which people still had the option of doing, um, you would get it as a, as a monthly payment. This helped people smooth out their bills. And, and one of the other things I worked on in my past was consumer protections. And we know that especially low-income families, people who are living paycheck to paycheck, month to month, when you get to the end of the month and you can't pay your bills, you're often left with no choice but to rely on high-interest credit cards or payday lenders. So you pay outrageous interest rates. Having the payments come monthly meant that people could use these funds to be able to meet their monthly expenses and not have to rely on these high-interest credit cards or payday lenders. So that's a, that's a real benefit in smoothing incomes. And again, incomes which over the last year, thanks to the pandemic, have become more volatile. So the Columbia Center on Poverty is estimated that in December, nearly 4 million children were lifted out of poverty. About another 6 million um, children were lifted out of deep poverty. And I want to pause for a second because, you know, that sounds good, but what what does it specifically mean, right? Children living in poverty have much worse health outcomes. They're more challenged in the educational system. Um, There's evidence to show that if teenagers are living under financial distress, they're more likely uh, to become victims of substance abuse. And so so poverty is, is, you know, it's a policy choice in this country, right? We know how to solve it. Um, and it has really, really long-term, terrible impacts on the children that are raised in it. So lifting these children out of poverty just in- increases their their future outlook so dramatically and it's something that we ought to do and make permanent but that's what happened in december and unfortunately as you point out because congress failed to act at the end of the year and extend this child tax credit these children are now likely to slip back into poverty going back to the beginning of this you and i have been fighting for social change for decades we're not giving up just yesterday senator brown booker warnock bennett Wyden, I'll send a letter to the president saying this has to be included in any big package. Uh, And so that's what we're fighting for right now.
0: Right. And, you know, as you say, there were more than 36 million families across the United States, urban and rural areas, uh, were receiving those uh, payments ranging from 250 to $300 per child. I mean, that makes a huge uh, difference. And and also, underscoring your point about the benefits for children in, in another study, not specifically uh, on the child tax credit, but just in terms of Moms uh, Getting Cash, Uh, that research that I think came out of uh, Columbia University uh, talking about babies' brain development, and they actually found that uh, the more resources, the the, the moms who were getting a basic income, uh, that it actually impacted uh, the brain development of their babies. Uh, That's that's just amazing. I mean, we don't want impoverished people to feel that, well, you know, my kid's brain isn't going to be, you know, there's going to be something wrong. But I think it just highlights the fact that uh, more resources, less stress on the mom, uh, more and better food in the household in terms of food and housing security. Any quick thought on that?
3: Yeah, I mean, let's face it, it's no longer theoretical, right? Putting more money in people's pockets, especially people who are struggling to get by, is going to lead to better outcomes for them and for their children. And now we have six months of data from this monthly expanded child tax credit. We found that people spent this, especially lower-income people, spent it on basic needs, utilities, clothing, food. In September, the Census Bureau found that people spent it on back-to-school and. For people who are, um, you know, n- not necessarily in the lowest income classes, um, but still, you know working hard and struggling. Um, It also meant things like like sports equipment, like soccer cleats, being able to sign your kid up for summer camp. Um, So and the relieving of stress, I can't I can't emphasize enough. You know, that is something that we all know now leads to better health outcomes um, and just more happiness and more time for people to spend together. Um, Let's not forget that most people living in poverty, they're working and some of them are working multiple jobs, having a little bit of extra Money on hand can also help you free up time, time to spend with your family and your children, and that's incredibly important.
0: Anna, tell us what happened next, because even though the the checks have stopped, there's still money coming for people. Tell us about that.
3: Absolutely. So one thing that's really, really important is um, the six-month of monthly payments was just half of the expanded child tax credit. So people should file their taxes as soon as possible. And even if you don't regularly file taxes, you should because you can get the second half of the child tax credit payment, the expanded payment. If you don't have children, (laughs) but you're in a lower income level, you might also qualify for an expanded earned income tax credit um, that this year also reaches people that are um, older and heretofore hadn't been eligible or younger than 25 and hadn't been eligible. So it's really important that you uh, file taxes this year and see if you're eligible either for the Expanded Earned Income Tax Credit or if you have children to make sure you get the second half of the child tax credit. In addition, if you didn't actually get your stimulus payments over the last year and you're eligible for them you might actually be able to get those as well. So so filing taxes this year um you know as as onerous as it might sound actually will lead to a lot of benefits for families across the country and that's super important.
0: Two things. One is that there is a letter, the 6419 letter it's called that the IRS has sent out and people may not realize the importance of that letter. Tell us the importance of that letter and why people need to be holding on to it um, as they file their taxes. Now, if they didn't get it, Um, not to worry, but if they did get it, they should hold on to it. Is that right, Anna? What is that about? I think that the letter
3: you're referring to is the letter that tells you how much you've already been paid out on the child tax credit. When you go to file your taxes, um, you can use that to help you figure out how much more you're eligible to get. So people should definitely hang on to that.
0: Right. And the other thing also, Anna, for people whose incomes are too low, you know, who, who generally don't file uh, taxes, is there any help, uh, you know, for them? I mean, if they, if they need help, they should know, first of all, that even if they j- usually don't file taxes because their incomes are too low, they should, though, file taxes this year. Is that right? And is there, you know, where can they go to get help? Uh, is there any website or any organization? organization uh, that could perhaps help people through this process
3: yeah thank you so much for asking that question so two things one is if you have children you should go to child tax credit, And that can be one-stop shopping on both filing your taxes and a simplified way to file your taxes, as well as claiming the credit. And so that's probably the best. If you need need help with this, there are also sites called Volunteer Income Tax Assistance Sites or VITA sites. And those are free tax return preparation sites. And they're in states across the country. And you can find a list of those on irs.gov. And I believe also, if you just go to childtaxcredit.gov, it will help you connect up with those sites where there's volunteers that can help.
0: Really important resources to know. Now, Anna, just on the political front, you mentioned the letter written by a number of senators encouraging the Biden administration to extend the child tax credit. We do know that the state of play seems to be that the Build Back Better Act will be divided into like individual pieces. And what, I'm hearing from the White House. Well, a lot of us are hearing and what we're concerned about is that the child tax credit isn't being mentioned. What's mentioned is pre-K education is one of the things mentioned that they seems to be going for. But tell us, what does that Really mean, and and also even progressive senators like Bernie Sanders. I noticed Bernie Sanders was not a signer along with uh, Senators Wyden and and Brown and others. Booker, uh, to, you know, encouraging uh, the president to keep the child tax credit. I mean, it's so important to so so many people. I mean, they're going to be children that are going to be going hungry. We can't let that happen.
3: So a couple of things. First and foremost, people need to be calling their senators and not just Democrats. Everybody across the country who's been getting the child tax credit, Republicans, Independents, Democrats, need to contact their senators and say it's critically important to extend it. Second is um, all 50 Senate Democrats voted for the American Rescue Package that expanded the child tax credit. It must be part of this next package. There's no real path of moving a standalone child tax credit um, because that would require 60 votes. And we know that there's not enough Republicans who support this kind of expansion. And so therefore it needs to be part of uh, what's called a budget reconciliation package with all of the other worthy programs that you talked about um, so that we can pass it with 50 votes. Um, And that means that again, Senators need to hear from families who are benefiting from, who had benefited from these credits, and who want to see them keep coming, and who want to see kids lifted out of poverty, not go to bed hungry, have families have a little more cushion, the ability to meet their monthly expenses, pay for things like summer camp. We're we're the wealthiest country in the world. There is absolutely no reason that a single child lives in poverty or goes hungry. And this child tax credit, this expansion, really started getting us a long way towards ending that. This is the opportunity we have ahead of us. I'm convinced we can make this happen, but people need to get active and 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 reach out because otherwise what these senators are hearing is just from the corporate lobbyists and the naysayers who don't want to have that wealthy people and the corporations pay more taxes to pay for some of these programs. And we have a moment of opportunity right now. We can make this happen, but it's critically important that people weigh in.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well thank you for that, Anna. And just finally, if uh, I, I know the Economic Security Project and others have some uh plans, you know, days of action, et cetera, coming up for people who want to get more information on uh, the action specifically on the Economic Security Project, but just generally to get involved in this battle for our children, our children are the future. And by the way, for our audience, so many, uh, we have a, a great multiracial audience across the country, but so many black and brown uh, listeners and the child tax credit has been a tremendous boost for communities of color, particularly for single mothers. But Anna, any websites that you want to give again quickly before we have you have to dash?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So our website is economicsecurityproject.org. And you can find information on that child tax credit. We also, as you mentioned before, I mean, we work on on guaranteed income programs. We're involved in a lot of guaranteed income pilots across the country, so you can get information on that. And then our Twitter handle is at economicsecproj, and we'll post upcoming days of action. We're looking at planning something in the middle of February to raise awareness that people should file their taxes to get the rest of the child tax credit and the expanded earned income tax credit, as well as obviously pushing to make sure that we can get an expansion and extension over the finish line as soon as possible to turn these monthly payments back
0: on. Right. Anna Aurelio, we appreciate you taking time. I know your schedule is really hectic for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. All righty. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We are actually now going to go to our weekly First minute. On
5: January 1st, 2022, the U.S. Department of Agriculture's new law took effect, requiring genetically modified foods to be identified as bioengineered, a move that further muddles consumer understanding of genetically modified organisms. The USDA now requires genetically engineered or GMO foods to be labeled as bioengineered foods. QR codes and options to text or call for more information are now considered acceptable forms of identification, which may lead to consumers missing the label altogether. According to EcoWatch, the burden is placed on the consumer to take extra steps, like scanning a code or calling a phone number, just to determine what they are buying. Many people do not have access to the technology these new disclosures may require. Rather than provide clear and transparent, on-package GMO labeling, this law misleads and deceives consumers while protecting the agrochemical and biotech industry. For the Earth Minute and the Sojourner Truth Show, this is Teresa Church with Global Justice Ecology Project. All right. And that was our weekly Earth
0: Minute. We are now going to take a station break and waiting in the wings to speak with us about this opening in the U.S. Supreme Court. Dr. Gerald Horn, you're not going to want to miss what he has to say. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Okay, and that is Taking Flight by Brandy Younger. This is Margaret Prescott host of Sojourner Truth. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter, at Radio. We're also nationwide and we are worldwide on SoundCloud. And in the US, I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Atlanta, Georgia. We have a lot of friends out there.
4: President Biden has this big decision. He has been very clear. He believes the next opening on the court uh, should go to a black woman, an African-American woman. uh, Who would be leading his list of potential choices?
2: Sure, John. You can imagine in in the country's 230-year anniversary of the Supreme Court, 233 years, I think, it has never had an African-American woman, so that would immediately change the court. Here are some names that have been in the mix, and they're ones that will be familiar to you. Uh, Topping the list is someone who has been a law clerk to Justice Breyer, uh, Judge uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson on the D.C. Circuit Court here in, in Washington. It's a very prominent court. President Biden named her to that last year. Uh, she has a very distinguished record as a trial court judge and now an appellate court judge. She, I think, is, uh, would be at the top of the, the pack in terms of her credentials, her background, and uh, for nice symmetry, her connection as a former clerk to Justice Breyer. Another woman would be Leandra Kruger on the California Supreme Court. Uh, she's someone else who's highly credentialed who would be in the mix. A possible late arrival to the uh, candidates that the president might look at would be uh, Judge Michelle Child. She's now on a district court, but she's been nominated recently to the D.C. Circuit, a very prominent stepping stone to the Supreme Court uh, that uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, Clarence Thomas, Antonin Scalia, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, they all came from that court, including Brett Kavanaugh. Let us go straight to Dr. Gerald Horn,
0: Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston, a regular on our weekly roundtable. Welcome, Dr. Horn.
6: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Okay, Dr. Horn, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer, 83 years old, announced his retirement. Um, the court, though, um, is split six to three with the conservatives, the Republicans, uh, basically controlling uh, the court right now. So although uh, President Biden will have a chance to nominate uh, someone new, it likely won't make a difference in the makeup of the court. But perhaps moving forward, um, it would be important. And nevertheless, it is significant because President Biden has promised Uh, to nominate a Black woman. Um, Your thoughts, uh, Dr. Horn, on this moment and also um, the historic role that the Supreme Court uh, has played, especially in relation to civil rights. Dr. Horn.
6: Well, with regard to the latter point, obviously the Supreme Court up until circa 1954 played a malignant role with regard to the protection of human rights and civil rights. You need only recall the notorious Dred Scott decision of 1857, where the High Court said that the United States and so called whites were not bound to respect uh, any rights of Negroes, as we were then called. But what happens in the 1950s, of course, is the Cold War. The United States is under under unremitting pressure to get its Human Rights Act in order. Uh, What happens are a number of fateful decisions. Number one, the Supreme Court, under Justice Earl Warren, a former governor of California, who, by the way, had presided over the internment of Japanese Americans a decade earlier, uh, somehow morphed into a tribune of human rights as he wrote the majority opinion in the Brown versus Board of Education decision, where the Supreme Court backed away from its apartheid policies that had theretofore been uh, enforced. But at the same time, as a result of Brown versus Board of Education, you saw Many of our liberal and centrist friends, led by the NAACP, who decided to break their pre existing alliance with the left, including socialists like Paul Robeson, uh, purported communists like Harry Bridges, the leader of West Coast Longshore, they tossed them overboard and made an alliance with the liberals and with the High Court. But now we see that the High Court is under the domination of conservatives that will probably last for some years to come, irrespective of who replaces Justice Stephen Breyer. And at the same time, it's not even clear if the liberals can save themselves, let alone uh, save the African-American minority. Uh, I think also I should mention that this (laughs) present moment uh, helps to illustrate the dilemma that we face, because we're going to have to fight like hell just to maintain an unsustainable status quo. What I mean is, it's not a slam dunk that one of these Black women will replace Stephen Breyer. You already see that in the Wall Street Journal this morning, uh, there is a quotation from the liberal Harvard professor emeritus, Lawrence Tribe, where he suggests that last year when uh, Amy Coney Barrett was up for nomination, that a vice president not necessarily could break a 50-50 tie to have an appointee to the high court. That is to say, with the 50-50 split in the Senate, uh, Tribe was saying last year that the Kamala Harris vote would not necessarily push this new nominee over the finish line. Now, of course, I'm sure that Mr. Tribe will backtrack, backtrack, but that's on the record. Likewise, uh, Time Magazine has reported that if the Judiciary Committee, which hears from the nominee, reports out a 11 to 11 vote that that may lead to some machinations and manipulations by Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, that could also sabotage uh, this uh, particular uh, nominee. So we need to realize that this is an important moment. I think we do need to fight like hell to make sure, depending on who this nominee is, that this nominee replaces uh, Justice Breyer to maintain this six to three uh, conservative majority because a seven to two conservative majority or a six to two conservative majority, assuming that no nominee is uh, pushed through, will obviously be disastrous.
0: Right. And, you know, Dr. Horn, in in terms of looking at these uh, nominees, there's a short list and then there's a a longer list, uh, short list, uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson, who is a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals in uh, the District of Columbia Circuit, um, a Harvard grad, Harvard Law School. There's uh, Leandra Kruger, who is from California. She's the youngest, uh, I think, of of those being considered from the California uh, Supreme Court out of Yale. And uh, then there is uh, Michelle Childs, um, who is the federal district court in South Carolina, and um, Jim Clyburn, Congressman Clyburn, who I suppose some refer to him as a kingmaker, given his blessing of uh, Joe Biden that many say really helped to lead to the election of Biden. He is pushing uh, for her. He is pushing for uh, Michelle Charles. And he's saying that he thinks that uh, she will get um, the two Republican senators from South Carolina so that she could get bipartisan support. But what I don't hear uh, mentioned uh, in this list is Cheryl Eiffel who is a civil rights attorney um, who had recently uh, said she was gonna step down from her role as president and director counsel of the NAACP Defense and Education Fund. And there, there was a lot of speculation about her being a nominee, but it, it, it sounds a little bit, if you listen to mainstream media, that she has been sidelined thus far. So in terms of the court and the makeup of the court, um, what are your thoughts on, on, on these nominees? Because some seem more liberal than others, some are more moderate, Dr. Horn.
6: Well, first of all, I think that all of the names that you've mentioned I'm afraid to say, would be a step forward in terms of Justice Breyer. I'm afraid to say I'm going to have to break with the liberal consensus with regard to the alleged sterling record of Justice Breyer. Certainly, he did a service when he voted in the Bush versus Gore case of December 2000, which handed the presidency to one George W. Bush over Al Gore. He voted the right way on that. He voted the right way with regard to preserving and saving Obamacare. But if you look at some of his other decisions, uh, for example, of voting to endorse a statewide referendum in Michigan that overturned affirmative action, voting to suggest that police officers can take DNA swabs from those who are arrested, voting to make sure that random drug tests of students can take place, I think that Justice Breyer has a lot of explaining to do as he sits down to write his memoirs. And I think that affirmative action decision is exceedingly important because you may have noticed that the US Supreme Court has just decided to put on its docket for the fall challenges to affirmative action in North Carolina, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill in particular, and Harvard University. Uh, Many analysts feel that they would not have put this these cases on their docket, if they did not attempt to o- overturn them. Now, we should realize that uh, even though uh, affirmative action is oftentimes portrayed wrongly and falsely as a kind of remedy for Blacks only or for Black and Brown people only, actually, the major beneficiary have been Euro American women. But I dare say that if the Supreme Court does the predictable and overturns affirmative action, Uh, This will be a major blow to anti-racism. And before we go a step further, we should recognize as well that in 2020, uh, a scant uh, 18 months ago or so, uh, you had a vote in California where the California electorate in its alleged wisdom uh, voted uh, not to overturn Proposition 209, that is to say, to restore affirmative action. They voted against affirmative action And so if supposed blue state California votes against affirmative action, uh, it's not a great leap to suspect that the Republicans in robes, known as the Supreme Court majority, will also vote to gut affirmative action. And speaking of Republicans in robes, uh, one of the critiques of Justice Breyer is that he was either naive or cynical. Uh, That is to say, he kept trying to tell the electorate and the populace of the United States that the U.S. Supreme Court justices were not, quote, junior varsity politicians, unquote. Well, in a sense, he was correct. They were varsity politicians, as any any person should be able to realize. And I'm sure he must realize that. So he was either naive or he was being cynical trying to convince the electorate of something he in fact did not actually believe and this is particularly important because as we speak there is a healthy trend developing in law schools particularly harvard law school to puncture the mythology of the u.s constitution and the supreme court in general i'm thinking of the recent book by harvard law professor the broken constitution Whose title says it all, and I would highly recommend it, or the book by his Harvard Law School colleague Michael Klarman, K L A R M A N, "The Framers' Coup," probably the best rendering we have of the machinations that went into the U.S. Supreme uh, U.S. Constitution uh, since uh, Charles Beer's "The Economic Interpretation of the U.S. Constitution," yeah. which came out a century ago.
0: Right. Well, Dr. Horn, um, we certainly want to hear a lot more about that and more from you on this, on our weekly roundtable tomorrow. We hope you will be able to, to join us because we're out of time. So we're going to have to move on to our weekly Earth Watt. Dr. Horn. as usual, you just broke it down beautifully for us. Thank you for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you so much. We are now quickly going to go to our weekly Earth Watch, a major victory protecting the forest. The timber sales in Jackson State Forest forest defenders have won a moratorium. To stop that, and I'd like to welcome Naomi um, Wagner. I also want to thank the Global Justice Ecology Project, who partnered with us for our weekly Earth Minute and our weekly Earth Watch. She has been an activist uh, since her teen years. She grew up in the redwoods of Northern California. She was a close friend of Earth First organizer, uh, Judy uh, Barry. She is um, a retired blue collar worker, a gardener, grandma, and media coordinator for Redwood Nation Earth First. Naomi, thank you for joining us. Naomi, I was getting the announcements coming from Redwood Earth First. And as a, a forest lover and an environmentalist myself, I was just Thrilled and delighted that you were able to uh, win this day. Tell us what the win is and if the fight is over, if there's still more to do. We, o- we only have a few minutes, so just go for it, Naomi. Absolutely.
7: Well, the fight is not over. And just because we won a victory, uh, you know, we, we, we usually lose in these battles. And so when we do win something, we really want to crow about it and let everyone know about it and we so appreciate getting out to uh, Los Angeles and the rest of the state because we're really behind the redwood curtain here, as we call it. It's very hard to get news out of our area, and um, usually they're just about disasters. So this is very good news. It is a win, but it is, I have to temper our enthusiasm because uh, what it is is that the um, Board of Forestry, through the Deputy Director of Natural Resources, uh, Mr. Reich, has announced that they will not offer any more timber sales this year. In, 19, in 2022, there will be no timber sales offered for bid, and that means, and they attribute that, and I almost quote here, to the slowdown and work stoppages that were caused by protests in this past year. So we can certainly take credit for that. And we certainly have slowed them down and stopped them on these new plans. There is still uh, There are still a couple of plans that are not covered by this. These are timber harvest plans. Um, the Board of Forestry and, um, their, and CAL CalFire are putting out a different story. They don't want to call this a moratorium. They wanna call it a strategic pause and so basically, um, just to go back to Judy Berry for a moment, she used to say, um, you know, act up till the system can't handle it, then they'll make a deal. And that's kind of the position we're in right now. We basically have acted up nonviolently, of course, so much that they have had to halt the timber sales. But they still have um, some approved timber harvest plans that have not had lawsuits filed on them. And the most important one of those is called Casper 500. That's where we put up tree sits last spring to protect um, some really huge old growth trees. Um, And the age is not so important as their size. You know, this is coastal, and that these trees can grow really big in. You know, in 90 years, you can have a a tree that's um, five feet around. And these trees are much more than that. So we put up tree sits there and called early morning blockades. And the community just responded incredibly, came out from um, the whole environment in from from the whole county, actually, Mendocino, um, rushed to the scene and were there at 5 a.m. to physically block with their bodies by standing in front of the gate so loggers couldn't come in and then that has gone on all year up until yesterday it seems like um that we have been out there people have been out in the forest every day on, on bikes monitoring this um so we're still in that process of monitoring they still are wanting to log this beautiful place called casper 500 and that's why we need to keep the pressure on I would like to let everybody know that they can, at the website that they can go to. If you want to get much more information and be able to take part and take action, you can go to savejackson.org. And there you will find um, all the numbers to call in the legislature and especially to call Governor Newsom. That is 916-445-2841. And I do want to tell you why we need you to call um, Governor Newsom, because there's, um, you know, there's there's a number of players here. There's the public, there's the activists, there's a coalition to save Jackson Jackson State Forest. There is the uh, tribes who are themselves um, sovereign nations and leading this coalition, and then there's the timber industry. Now, you would think, you know, it would make sense to, you know, in this era of climate change, it would make sense to save big old trees, right, because they sequester carbon. They also help us have clean water and air and good for wildlife. Um, And they are um, there to protect native values, which are just being run roughshod over. I want to say a little bit about that. One of the biggest issues here, if not the biggest, is the respect or the disrespect for cult native sites. There, Jackson State Forest is full of indigenous sacred sites and cultural sites, and the tribes are just very um, upset about the way they're being treated. There was um, a a study called, that that called for these sites to be protected, but they have not been. In fact, they've been destroyed systematically, and that is really the reason we need this moratorium to uh, take hold. Uh, It's not a strategic pause, it needs to actually stop. And so we still need to call the governor and tell him to tell the Board of Forestry to implement his um, directive for co-management so that um, right. they will right. actually start working with the tribes. Naomi,
0: we are out of time. We're going to have to leave it there. I'm, I'm, I'm terribly sorry about this, but I'm, I'm a proud uh, member of the uh, Forest Convergence group. I'm proud to be there and, and and we'll be continuing to cover this story. So we'll have you back. Thank you for breaking it down so well for us. We appreciate you. Y'all Thank are you heroes so... out there protecting the forest. already. Uh We're out of time today. produced right. by me, Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank Mark Maxwell for his help uh, trying to set up our tech. There's various tech issues. I'd like to thank Wendell Handy, who is on the board today. Alicia Vargas, our new assistant producer. If you'd like a copy of today's show, contact the Pacifica Radio Archive. The Journal Truth will be back on there tomorrow with our weekly roundtable. You won't want to miss that. A lot going on. Thank you for listening.